today talking about love. You know, when you were raised, you were raised by parents who did their best and who um, represented God uh, to the best of their ability. But every one of us falls short to some degree. We're all becoming. And uh, though parents would do their best, where we have to go to look, we can't just look at our heritage and say, that's who I am because that's where I came from. We have to look at God and say, who do you want me to be? And how does this all work according to your kingdom? Thank God for parents who did their best. But even more so, thank God for a loving father who won't leave us where we're at, hurting people, not able to figure it out. He teaches us, he leads us, he grows us. And he has a definition of love that's way different than this world we live in. The best place to find this definition is in 1 Corinthians 13 in the Bible. It's called the love chapter of the Bible. And there are four verses that we're going to go through in the next several weeks, adding scriptures from all over the Bible and stories and truths in the Word to show us what love is. How does this thing work? If you get this, if we catch it, we'll all be better people, we'll have better relationships, better homes, and we'll be better witnesses for Jesus. And God wants us all to grow. I've called this first sermon, Love is Humble. Now that's not actually in the passage, but... The few things we're talking about today add up to humility, and you can see them coupled, these characteristics coupled with the word humility in other scriptures in the Bible. Here's what James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. I think as we listen to these words and look at the scriptures, each one of us is going to come to a place where we see that we're deficient a little bit. And we have a potential in that moment of saying, well, yeah, I'm just not that, you know, that's not the way I am, I'm type A, I'm type Z, whatever it may be, but it still applies to us, and we have to humble ourselves. If we're going to grow, we have to humble ourselves, and it starts with this. I have need of growth in this area. I'll be blessed if I follow, and others around me will be blessed as well, and if I'll humble myself, he will lift me up and honor me. It's interesting that when we talk about the word love, we only have one word for it in our English language, and it's love, of course. But in the language that the New Testament was written in, ancient Greek, they had four words. And these are the words, eros, philos, storge, and agape. And I want to talk about each of those quickly because it it lends some strength uh, to to the type of love we want to talk about. Eros, that's the Greek word from where we get the, the term in our culture, erotic. And it has to do with romanticism at its best, uh, but sexual fantasy and worse uh, on, on the other end of the spectrum. It's really the one that Hollywood emphasizes, right? So Americans are kind of messed up because we think it's this sexual, uh, romantic, it's all about a feeling, and so that's eros, <clears throat> uh, that physical attraction that's compelling us to another individual, and at its best, it's a crush on someone, at its worst, it's sexual fulfillment for the sake of pleasure only, eros. Then there's philos, and um, 
this is the, the friends that we have. The, you know, you have best friends, good friends, and that's a love feeling too. You can love your friends. David and Jonathan had this in the Bible. Totally pure, totally cool thing. And, and by the way, eros isn't necessarily bad if it's in the context of, you know, that romanticism and sexuality in the context of marriage. And neither are any of these definitions when they're done properly, but they're not enough, these first three. So philos is, is friends, and that's great to have friends who, who love you, hang out with you, that you like to be with. Uh, it's the word philos where we get Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. They're not doing so good because they booed Santa Claus in an Eagles game once, but they, you know, they're trying to get there. So, but that's what, it's brotherly love is what that talks about. And then there's storge, and this is the natural affection felt between family members. When that baby is born, I'm telling you, when Aaron and Candace were born, those little guys, the moment I saw them, I loved them so much and I would die for them. It's the, it's the craziest thing and parents know what I'm uh, talking about. And, and that's a great kind of love too and it's, it's a cool thing. The blood is thicker than water. You're always there for your family. You love your family. You help them through thick and thin and you believe in them. But then we come to this kind of love that shows up in the New Testament. It's brand new. As a matter of fact, it hadn't been penned before when Paul puts down this word agape. And it's an unconditional love. More than that, <clears throat> uh, we hear unconditional all the time. Let me give you another def- definition that's just as close uh, to me anyway as unconditional love. It's a selfless love. It's not about the way I feel. The interesting thing about these first three Greek words, er- eros, philos, and storge, is, is all of them are described with adjectives. But for the first time, agape, everything in verses four through eight, which we're gonna go through in the next week, is described with verbs, action. This kind of love is selfless and it's action. It's not just feelings. All the others are feelings oriented. That's why we describe them with adjectives. But this is action and it's a conscious decision. It's a choice that's made to love no matter what. It's the kind of love that Jesus loved us with when we didn't deserve salvation when all of us had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but he came and he gave his life even though we'd been against him and he won our hearts this agape love is the foundation for the best and most wonderful relationships in life now catch that the best relationships in life are based in this kind of love so we we need to value this that God is talking to us about it's the type of love that the Bible tells us to have And so let's read this, and I want to pray before we start, because I'm kind of introing the series with the long intro here. But let's look at this, we're going to look at just a few characteristics that I think add up to humility today, but let's look at this whole passage and read it before I start this sermon this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, love is kind. See, this is that selfless, unconditional love. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That right there lets us know that not only do we need a will, but we need God's power to help us because we're pretty good at keeping record of wrongs, aren't we? So we need God to show up to give us this. We, We have to have our will say, yes, I want it. I humble myself, teach me. But then he shows up with power. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, Wait, wait, always trust, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. Keep that last line as we go through these series when there are moments, because for me, I don't, I don't even know if this will make sense, 
But when there's an area that I need to grow, it's like I can sense it immediately when the word is applied to it, but I don't completely get it because all through my life, I've built this, this thinking system that made me think a little different. And so when the truth first comes, it's kind of like clouded at first, except I can say, wait, I know that's true, but the reason it's clouded is because I've been messed up in that area in my life. And so when the clarity comes and I open my heart and ask God to apply his spirit, it's just like oil that gets the rust out of my mind. The oil of the Holy Spirit moves through and suddenly I begin to think his way instead of my way and my way has been messing me and others up. But here's what we need to know as we look at this. Love never fails. So when we come to those areas where we have to say, you know, because here's the deal, people point it out, right? Maybe their motives aren't right. But when they say it over and over and over again in the same areas, we better think about it, right? We've got an issue somewhere. Love never fails. Don't worry about them being right. Worry about getting it right with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We're so grateful that you don't come to condemn us. You might convict us this morning, but only for the purpose of releasing us to great joy and the best life possible on this earth. And so God, we open our hearts and we say, pour your love in that we might pour your love out. In Jesus' name. Amen. So three things we'll share about love this morning, right from this passage. The first, from verse four, love is patient. Patience is really emphasized in the Bible. You see, when Moses hits the rock, even great men and women of God, when they get angry, when they don't keep their patience, trouble ensues. And we see it emphasized over and over in the Bible, patience. The opposite would be letting go and venting your anger or your frustration. But God calls for patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It's emphasized over and over again. It is a big deal in the Bible. So it should be a big deal to us. So you can't say this. Well, if you want patience, don't come to me. That's not my deal. Well, yeah, that would be exactly why you need to get that to become a deal for you and for me and for us. I don't mean that to condemn anybody. We can't skip the parts that we're not good at. Those are the parts we need to lean into and say, God, take me there. So patience is this, the loving response to frustration. It's measured by our ability to endure something we'd rather not. I want you to not think of, the emphasis here is not your circumstances are a long wait until something happens for you in a new job. Don't think of circumstances here. This is personal relationships. This is interpersonal and usually about the people you're closest to. Patience. And so you don't have need for patience unless you have need to endure something that you'd rather not with someone. (laughs) Right? You're frustrated with them. So when there's trouble and difficulty, that's when patience needs to show and and it will have a great effect. So here's what Lesson Leslie Parrott said, and I like this. Patience empowers love to work on a troubled marriage. Because otherwise you're just in each other's faces about what didn't go right. But if you're patient and you want to let them know that even though you're striking out at me, I love you and I, I, I just, I want to give us our best chance. So I'm going to hold my tongue and believe in you. Now that sounds crazy, right? We've been raised in America where you strike back. You hit back when someone hits you. You know, you're, you're not, uh, and, I, and, I'm, and even emotionally, not just physically, that sounded physical, but I mean, I mean emotionally, no, I'm not gonna let you take advantage of me and make me think bad about myself because I'm a good person. We need to resist that kind of thinking and know in those moments 
that if we're patient, the best result that God wants to work in not only our lives, but that other person's life will begin to happen. Patience empowers love to care for a troubled child, a child that's gone astray. Patience empowers love to accept even our troubled selves. We get frustrated when we can't get there. God is patient with us. And he wants us to be patient. You know, you've heard me say it over and over again. This is patience too. Putting a crown a few inches above someone's head and watching them grow into it. Believing in them even, they don't have, even though they don't have everything right right now. I remember a brother said that to me. I was a camp speaker and got in a tussle with a college kid on the basketball floor as the speaker. You know, Lee was talking about me playing basketball. I don't play basketball anymore. Why? I want to have a witness somewhere, man. I, I, you know, I, I just forget it. I, I get too aggressive. And, 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 and so here, here, here's the deal. I came out of that, and that guy went and told the camp guy, and, you know, we didn't fight or anything, but, man, we went at it, and he was verbal, and I was verbal, and we elbowed. And so I didn't know it was the superintendent's son from the whole state. <laughs> and and uh, so he goes, and I see him talking to one of my, one of my buddies who's the, invited me to speak at the camp, and he's pointing over at me and going. <laughs> and I see Elder. He weighs about 350 pounds. He's, he's like a Buddha, but he's a Jesus guy, you know, and he... He's sitting over there and he looks at me and he goes, and the guy just walks away. I said, did he talk to you about that, uh, Keith? And he said, yeah, but I just told him, oh, he's a good guy. He's growing. He's going to get there. <laughs> it, you know what that made me want to do? It made me want to get there. You, you know what I mean? It's just like Keith believed in me even though I wasn't good. And when you put that crown a few inches above somebody's head, they, will, they have a tendency to want to grow into that crown. You think of that as a coach. You think of that as a leader. That when people make mistakes, it's when they need to see grace the biggest sometimes because people respond to grace in an incredible way. And patience is a way of saying, I give you grace in this moment because I love you that much. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing one another in love. You see that emphasis there on personal relationships. It works with family. It works with our business relationships. It works with our neighbors. It works in church relationships that we're patient with one another. Who's perfect among us? Who really is? Do we want to highlight each other's weaknesses? No. We want to believe in one another. And then more strength comes when we do. Patience, when it works its way, has a great result. It's a big deal. I read a story about a, a great dynasty in China that had one of their apocryphal writings uh, with this story in it. Uh, they, they, there was a man who had extraordinary relationships in that culture. He got along with everyone. He never argued with his friends or his family members. His children were kind and polite. They had remarkable harmony inside and outside of the home. And news of this remarkable man, this insightful man, traveled to the emperor uh, in China who, when he heard the story and met the man, was so impressed that he ordered the man to write a great scroll describing in 10,000 words how others could produce such great relationships in their life with friends, family, and those around them. 10,000 words was a royal proclamation. So weeks were given and the man came back. He laid the scroll before the emperor. The emperor opened it up and looked a bit intrigued. And then with a smile, he nodded his head. Because though the man wrote 10,000 words, it was just one word 10,000 times. Patient, patient, patient. And when we're patient with others, 
loving them and even believing in them as family members, just believing that, that, that what God has put in there is going to come out. And, and that when we have a godly response, that we give them the best chance to see what it looks like. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply from the heart because love covers over a multitude of sins. So you guys, most of you know my dad, <clears throat> Pastor Ray, who was here for <clears throat> 15 years as a pastor for the seniors ministry and retired and moved to, uh, I'm sorry, Missouri a couple of years ago. And um, I want to tell you a story about him. He really didn't come to Christ. When I was born, my family didn't follow Jesus. And until I was um, around 10, my, my dad didn't accept Christ. So I grew up in an unsaved home till, till that point. Um, and my dad had been a boxer in these armed services. So in, in the army, he had 17 fights, didn't lose a fight. I talked to him about that. He said, son, I would have lost a couple, but I wouldn't fight those guys. <laughs> so he's pretty smart, I guess, in, uh, see when someone was good. He just said, yeah, I'm not fighting them. And, and um, that's how you get to 17-0, evidently. But any, anyway, you know what? My dad grew up as a fighter. He had a really rough childhood. He fought all the time in his youth, and that's why he became, you know, a lot of those boxers, uh, that, that anger in him came from somewhere, right? And that was dad in his youth. And, uh, you know, we saw some of that, and, you know, he always loved us, and, but when he wasn't saved, we'd see that, and I, I, saw him, I saw him fight, even as a kid. And he'd been in a ton of fights in his life. And then he came to Jesus, and things started changing. It didn't happen overnight, but one of the reasons I believe in Jesus Christ is I saw what Jesus did to my dad, and he changed him. And uh, thinking of this patience, dad never had a lot of it when it came to someone pushing him. I mean, if you just do that to him physically, something happens, you know. And, and, and um, so, so, so my dad's just been saved. We're over at my uncle's house, and we're, we're some of you never heard anything like this, but we're, uh, we're, we're digging in a worm bed, it's a worm farm that you actually create for worms for fishing, and my uncle had one, bunch of okies, I know, but... But anyway, so we get this coffee, this Folgers coffee can, one of those big ones, and we're getting the worms, and someone comes out, comes out from the apartment nearby, getting all mad. It was, it was an elderly African-American gentleman who was completely drunk. And he started yelling and cussing at my dad, and I thought, whoa, you know, I don't think you want to do this to this man. And then he grabbed the can out of my dad's hand, and he swung around, and he hit my dad right here with it hard. And I, and I thought, as the 10-year-old who knew the dad before, oh, you shouldn't ought to do that to my dad, you know? <laughs> and I was ready for him to take care of this thing, right? And here's what he did. He smiled at him. And he said, well, if you, if you want that can, you can have it. And we walked away. And initially, I'll be honest with you, I thought my dad was a chicken. I said, Dad, you're afraid. He said, son, I'm not afraid. That guy's drunk. You could whip him if you wanted to. He said, son, that man's just a hurting man, and I'm not going to help anything if I do that. And I saw something in my dad that had, this, the switch had flipped, and he was on a different journey. And some of these things that happen in life, see, that's the way, oh, my dad had, uh, had taught me how to be tough before that. My dad used to make us do 40 push-ups, and then get up a minute later and do 40 more, and then put us against the wall and hit us in the stomach to make us tough. We liked it, by the way, because uh, we thought we were having fun. But he was teaching me to be a fighter, and all of a sudden, he, he, I, I could see that his life had changed, and now he was teaching me how to fight in the heavenlies and win. 
See, this physical stuff, this verbal stuff, this emotional stuff, we like it, we feel good in the moment, and we lose in life. Because when we let fly, things go awry and we hurt people. Emotionally. Proverbs 19.11, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. So that's true when we come into a crisis situation like my dad was in, but that's true for men and women in the closest relationships we have. It's, it's somehow it says it's to our glory to overlook an offense. And God calls for patience, a wisdom and patience. Second thought, closely related, love is kind. So love is patient. Love is kind. Kindness is love's readiness to enhance the life of another person. Now, I love America, so don't get me wrong, but, but, you know, I love my family too, but my family has flaws. I love this church. This church has flaws, right? So let's talk about part of the flaw of the logic and philosophy in America. Uh, part of the flaw is we've been raised to where if we do life right, then other people serve us. That we're not, we're not going to be the ones that are, that are down here. We're going to be the ones that are up here. We're going to rise to the top. We're going to have the best. We're going we're gonna to achieve and we're going to do our best. And then others, will, will, we'll have them around us to enhance our life. But that's not the way God's economy works and God's love. Kindness is a readiness to enhance someone else's life. And that's what God's love says. I want you to be ready to enhance someone else's life with kindness. Think of those around you, closest around you. When you think of a spouse, a wife who, you ladies know that the, that the Proverbs 31 woman, the ideal woman in the Bible, she was a working woman. <laughs> Do you know that? She worked in, in, in a marketplace and, uh, you know, with linen and, and then she was at home taking care of her family. She's a busy lady. And I know you, this culture, you're so busy. Most of you work and, and you've got family and all these duties. Husbands, what if, what if, see, see, kindness wants to enhance the life of the other, not just say, I'm here for you to enhance my life, honey. Uh, no woman ever married a man just so she could bring him uh, coffee every day and, and, um, and make his dreams come true when he has no concern for her. <laughs> this, is, this is like a partnership, this deal, right? <laughs> we're, we're enhancing one another's lives. We're trying to bless one another, help one another. And the best marriages happen when two people are trying to out-bless one another. So what if husbands, what if we uh, recognized she had a tough day and brought her coffee? What if we did the dishes? What if we just sat down and verbally said, you know what, you're an amazing lady. Thank you for this, this, and this, and this. Kindness. Enhancing someone else's life. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, in Christ, God forgave you. Kindness is making someone else's day better. Now, you haven't done anything wrong necessarily if you have no interaction and you haven't been kind. But you're not creating an atmosphere that makes anything better until you're kind. Until you do something you don't have to do for someone else. You're not required to do it, but something in you, this love, compels you. And the verb, here it is, the action, be kind. As, as a matter of fact, as I looked at one scholar writing about this, he said, you know, it seems that the most accurate version of this, it's a word that doesn't exist, would be do kindnesses. 
because it's, it's an action word. And, and so though that's not really a word, the point is just go out of your way to be good to one another, good to others, and enhance their day. Because that's when life starts getting good in family, right? When you know that person really loves me and I really love them and I want to do this for them and they've been so good to me. When, when that starts to happen, the whole atmosphere changes. Kindness is really closely related to encouragement. Something verbal coming out of your mouth of affirmation. Colossians 3, Therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility. There's the, the word humility that's coupling patience and kindness in this verse and that's why I called this sermon Love is Humble. Gentleness and patience are in there too. Clothe yourself with them. Wear it every day. Put it on. Be conscious of it. So I tried to think about um, a place in my life where someone was incredibly kind to me and it made a difference. And it surprised me where my mind went. But let me set the stage before I tell you the story. My mother says that uh, she believes that I went to 36 schools before I graduated from college. And um, I believe that there are only uh, six through junior high and high school. So that means 30 before junior high. And, and six, uh, three different years, I went to six schools in, those, in that year. And um, long story, uh, you know, unsafe family, moving around, dad did business stuff. Um, but you can imagine that would be hard on kids, right? And, and homeschooling wasn't thought of like it is today in, in those days. So we just dropped into school. And I remember being in college and someone saying, you know, curriculums don't flow right when you go to school like that. You know what I mean? I got my times tables down really good because they were everywhere I went. We were on it right there. But I missed a few other things in the curriculum, right? I remember them saying that there's someone saying there's a full moon and it's, you know, must be that time of the month again. And I was like, what? In college, I didn't know there's a full moon once a month, you know? And so I missed stuff. And that was hard, but even harder, it was hard to make friends. The worst place I ever was, and, and I don't mean to demean them because I'm sure there's wonderful people in Willows, California. And I, I went there as a, as a freshman in high school. And um, I was always an athlete. I played three sports there as a, as, a, as a freshman. But they allowed hazing in those days. And it wasn't that big a deal. So I remember being sold in an auction at, at a, as a freshman to some upperclassmen guys who put me in tights and a tutu um, and poured oil over my head, and that's how I went to school all day long, as well as carrying them. There were four of us that carried them on this pallet like they were kings, you know, to their classes. Couldn't do that today. Um, and everybody else seemed to like it in that day, but me, I didn't like it. Um, so it's not only that, but I remember one scenario. I had so much trouble making friends there. I never had trouble making friends. But these guys were so connected to each other, and and they knew each other forever. It's a small high school of about 400. And, <clears throat> and they seemed nice enough. They just seemed disinterested in me because they had their stuff going on. This is one of the reasons I'm so sensitive to visitors in this church because that's the way we can make them feel. And I don't want anybody to feel that way. God wants everybody to feel loved and welcomed. And, and, uh, but I remember as a freshman playing football that one day I'm walking through the seniors' locker room to get to the freshman locker room, coming back from using the restroom, and they all collapsed on me, just a big surprise. They'd been waiting for me. And the door flew open. 
Now, I'm coming back in my athletic supporter. That's all I'm wearing. And today, people think of that as a fan in the stands. Um, but if you don't know what that is, ask someone else on the way home. I just don't want to go into that explanation. But you're not completely covered. I'll just say that, right? And I saw the door fly open. I remembered all the girls sitting in a circle outside that door. And I fought like crazy. I grabbed the rafters, I kicked, I swung, and, but in five minutes later, they threw me out the door and locked the door on me. Kind of a funny picture, though, when you think of the only thing I could see where I could get relief was I jumped in the garbage can and, you know, did this. And that, so there, that was pretty much my experience at Willow's. It wasn't that awesome, you know. About six months in, I started to make friends. That's a long time in school, six months. And I thought, finally, they started opening their hearts and lives to me. And then at about the seventh month, we got the news that we were moving. And I cried like a baby as a freshman. I just cried because I thought everything would be terrible. I thought this was it. You know, it, it's just, I'm going to go and have to experience this again. I don't want to. I just got through this. But we went to a place called Dallas, Oregon, a city here, a bedroom community of Salem, about 10,000 people where the lovely Karen Russell was born on the most special day ever, November 8th, 1962. Amazing day. God did his best work on that day. <laughs> so I go to this school and I think, well, here we go again. I, I walk in, but it's completely different. There's a quarterback on the football team named Russ Henry. He's probably the best athlete in school and the most popular guy. He's super nice, though. He's not arrogant at all. This guy took me under his wing from day one when I didn't deserve it. And he took me around for, for, for a few days introducing me to everybody. And in three days, my life was already better than it had been in that previous year. And when I thought of kindness, I thought of Russ Henry, someone who didn't have to do that. He just cared. And he was nice. And we were never great friends. We were always friends. But he, he liked making somebody's day better. And he's still an incredible man to this day. Kindness enhances people's lives. People we barely know. People we've known for a long time. It changes the atmosphere. It makes everything better. And that's why God wants us to value it to take action to make other people's lives better. I read a story about um, some youth workers, a husband and wife this week, who were at an event with scores of junior hires. Now, I was once a youth pastor, and I love junior hires one at a time. That's how I love them, one at a time. They're awesome, one at a time. You get them together in large groups, and I, I was tempted as a youth pastor to just put them in a cage and throw meat, you know, because I, I couldn't quite, I couldn't figure it out, right? They're, they're just, they're wild and crazy. They're fun, but, uh, but you know, they're, they're at an event like this with scores of junior hires as youth workers, and there's a young lady named Tracy, and here's the story. Um, this lady says, Gavin and I, her husband, were helping my pastor guide these lively teens through the all-night lock-in at church and early in the evening Gavin challenged me to a game of table tennis in the fellowship hall so husband and wife were playing the game quickly heated up and the score was tied with only three 
points to go before the end of the game. Sounds like a pretty competitive woman there. And Tracy, this eighth grader, grabbed the ball and she said she kept it from us. She said, my first impulse was irritation. But then a scripture passage that our group had read the afternoon, that afternoon came to mind. Love is patient. Love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. So Gavin and I joked with her until she finally tossed the ball back and then we thanked her and we finished the game. Hours later after uh, an evangelistic film, she says, Tracy walked down the aisle with six others to give her heart to Jesus Christ. Later that night during a testimony time, Tracy stood up and said these words, I grew up in a family where nobody goes to church. I've learned to get attention by making people mad at me. But earlier this evening, I saw something different. Gavin, she says, and I looked at each other and raised our eyebrows. And Tracy said, when I stole the ball from those guys, and then she pointed at us, they didn't get mad at me. They didn't fight back. I decided right then that I wanted whatever it is that they have. Not only, here's the deal about kindness and patience. Not only is it good for you and good for the other in the relationship and will cause the relationship to to be the best it can be, but it, it shines the light of Jesus Christ. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. and we see it right there in that story where when these things are put in play, there's a certain discipline to these reactions, you know, where you have to tell yourself, I want to, but I'm not going to, you know? But when we do it right and get the power of God to help us, lives start to be transformed around us, even those who know not Christ. Romans 2.4 says this, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? It's talking about God's attitude towards us. He's kind. His tolerance and his patience, he's patient towards us, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. So he's been so kind and patient with us and forgiving with us that we come to him and we feel awesome about it. Now he says, sons and daughters, I'd like for you to carry those same characteristics to others so they can see me and experience my best. Patience, kindness, let's value them. Let's ask God to help us with them. Third characteristic that I wanna share today is this one called envy that's here. Love doesn't envy or boast. Envy's not just wanting what the other person has. Envy is wanting the other person not to have it. There's where you start to get an attitude. Now, the greatest temptations for envy, this is is what I think I've experienced. I I think we see it in the Bible with Cain and Abel. And uh, You know, envy's just so rotten. Did you know that it says in the Bible that one of the reasons Jesus was crucified was envy? When Pilate said, take Barabbas or Jesus, it says that he offered them that, um, that man Barabbas because he knew that the Jews who brought Jesus to him had envy in their hearts towards Jesus Christ. Envy is a killer, man. Now when God tells us to be careful about envy, he, he, this jealousy thing, you know, Cain and Abel, Tanya Harding, you know, things can rise up that just get, get to be terribly crazy that you you wouldn't expect to do you lash out you get pent up anger uh you 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 feel discontented because you think someone else has got more than you and god's saying i don't want you to have envy because love has no envy envy happens in our closest relationships with siblings it can choose to, to sometimes rise up the mom loves him more dad loves her more whatever it may be 
Um, they've had great success. I haven't. Uh, I wish they didn't. That can happen in, in families. And, <clears throat> and we have to be careful of this. Coworkers, right? We're working around the same desk. Someone else gets a promotion. We don't think they deserve it. We deserve it. Envy can rise up and attitudes can start to change and the witness of Jesus can be lost. Teammates. I can tell you that I've played on teams where everybody loved each other, believed in each other, and those teams were the winning teams. When they don't believe in each other, and when they start to resent each other and be jealous of each other, they don't even pass the ball to, to one another. They don't want, envy just messes up everything. It just does. And God says it's really dangerous. Listen to these, these scriptures. Here, here's, I just thought this was interesting. See the other sins that envy is, is coupled with or listed with in this passage. The acts of the sinful nature, this is Galatians 5.19, are obvious. Sexual immorality, Impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord. These are pretty, pretty bad things. Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies. Orgies? It's in the same list with orgies, man. This is, this is a bad deal. Envy. And the like, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then James 3.16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, because those are pretty closely related, selfish ambition and envy, there you find disorder and not just evil practice. (laughs) I find this amazing. Every evil practice. What happens is it starts to break down all these other characteristics of love and you start to go your own way with selfishness and then you'll go anywhere once it's all about me feeling good. You'll go to sexual sin, you'll go anywhere. And, and the enemy will just use these things to break us down. And God says, I want you to be really cautious not to let this take root any place in your life. Envy will kill churches. Well, I don't want them to succeed because they're not a spiritual. And I was here for 10 years and I did that and this person got that and, oh my. It's hard to get unity. It's hard to even say there's a will of God when everyone's, supreme focus is self and anywhere the church teams work family it's a killer it's a killer jealousy when entertained leads people to do terrible things to others but don't ever forget that the person who will be the most harmed with envy is you you'll feel terrible Envy, what do you think the, the opposite of envy is? It might surprise you, it's contentment. Envy is saying, I'm not happy with the lot I have right now. Someone else has more. Did you know you really start to thrive in life when you're thankful for where you are right now? How, how, do, you, how do you think about life? Do you think about what you don't have or what you do have? Do you think about where you'd like to be or are you grateful for where you are? doesn't mean that you don't want to achieve but when you're thankful to God here's what the Bible says be content with every state that you're in that's not talking about Oregon that means every circumstance so man you know I've been to Mexico City and seen people living on the dumps families living on the dumps in the dump this massive place where there's thousands of people in shanties pulling cardboard and tin and putting up house and they're happy what? 
We make it all about material things and all about circumstances being right, but did you know that we can be contented in whatever state we're in? You heard me just expressing a little bit about how thankful I am for this woman just a few moments ago. That is enough to make me feel good every day when I get up and say, Lord, thank you for that woman. She's awesome. Lord, thank you for these kids. They're awesome. My children, I love them. Thank you, Lord, that I can be here at this church. There's something every day that's not so good for my life. And I'm just like you. I could think about those things, dwell on those things, or I can thank God for every good thing he's done, and I even thank him for every good thing that's coming because I know he's good. Now, I, I don't want to make myself sound like I'm amazing. I'm just a normal guy, just like you. I really am. One of the reasons I don't wear a suit and tie is I want you to know I'm a normal guy. I'm just like you trying to figure it out and, and, and grow in Jesus. But I've learned I don't do so well when I think those negative thoughts, but when I'm thankful to God and I express that and I express to people my thanks for things that are actually there, my heart starts to get happy and joyful about what I have instead of running towards what I wish something was. Envy, the opposite of contentment. The root of What's it say? Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder in every evil practice. I read something this week in one of Max Lucado's books, great Christian author. The book is called A Love Worth Giving, and he wrote about a single woman um, who struggled with envy because she would see good things in other people's lives, and she wanted them for herself too, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But boy, we have to be careful. There's a line we can cross where um, we just cause pain for ourselves more than anyone else. So here's the story. Lucado says Nancy's single, 40-something and single. Her friends chat about diapers and schools and oddities of husbands and curiosities of family life. She listens and smiles. She's single, 40-something and single, Her friends drive minivans. A high school classmate has kids bound for college. Nancy drives a compact car and eats most meals alone and feels awkward at baby showers. She's single and people wonder why. They never say it, but their eyes betray it. You aren't married is the question. Why not is the thought. Is something wrong, something awry, abnormal? Lucado says, serving on a church staff exacerbates the contrast. She dutifully nods as members tell family holiday stories and husband-wife vacation adventures. She spent last Christmas with her parents and then drove home alone. And she'd enjoy a trip, but travel partners are hard to come by. How can she love the church family when they have so much what she longs to have for herself? She occasionally feels vulnerable at night. What was that noise? She feels self-conscious at parties. Do I go alone? And she's having to cope with this thing called envy. Not red-hot anger, not hatred, just envy. A flicker of resentment toward women who have what she doesn't. And she's concerned about what it might lead to in her life. And Lucado says, well, she should be, for what is a flicker today can turn into a fire tomorrow. 
<clears throat> and Lucado asked this question in his book, do you wrestle with envy? And then he says, if so, you need to do what Nancy did because that's not the end of the story in the book. <clears throat> Stop listing what you want and start trusting God to provide what you need. That's what he said the answer was. And here's Nancy's story. She wrote this and it's in the book. <clears throat> Listen to her story. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was a few days before my annual staff Christmas party, she says. It came to my attention that I might be one of the few singles in attendance. It was such a dreadful thought, and of course, I truly didn't want to go. But as I prayed, I realized that God wanted me to go, and he wanted to be my partner. He wanted to be my partner. She said, when I first sensed that in my spirit, I didn't know how this could happen, but again, to pray, I began to pray that I would recognize his presence beside me every moment and that I would radiate that presence. So we went to the party and I love that because she means her and Jesus. We went to the party. As we entered, I immediately saw a potential male interest with a beautiful woman. It didn't faze me. As we walked from room to room, I socialized Encourage those I saw and truly practice putting others first. As we left, and he still means me and she means me and Jesus. As we left and we got into my car for the long drive home, I burst into tears. Tears of joy and tears of pain. I rejoiced to feel the peace and presence of Jesus in a tangible way, despite the pain of singleness. The following Monday, a friend stopped by my office and said, I noticed you at the party and wondered if it might be hard for you to be there alone. But I just wanted to tell you that you radiated God's joy that night. And Nancy says, since then, I've attended countless weddings, receptions, class reunions, and parties with Jesus as my partner. I can't say it's been easy, but I now know that each event my faith can grow. I continue to grow in my understanding of what it means to partner with Jesus daily and the small things and the big things and what it means for him to be ever present, always available, and the lover of my soul. Wow, now there's a battle that Nancy fought with envy and she won and things are better for her life. She still wants to be married, that's cool, and maybe we should pray for her. The Lord will bless her. But because she wins and she doesn't lose out to envy, she feels way better and everybody around her gets to see Jesus. Because she's got a remarkable life with remarkable gifts and a remarkable spirit. Proverbs 14.30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. See, the alternative is misery. And envy can lead us to misery, just rots the bones. Not just in singleness, everywhere. Why can't I get that promotion? Why won't they put me in that ministry position? Why does my brother get all the attention with sports? It rots the bones. It messes up life. And Jesus says, there's a lot of evil there. Beware, be careful, guard your heart. And we can be like Nancy. We can ask him for his help and he shows up. That's what's so awesome about God. When we humble ourselves, just that first verse I read in James, 
Humble yourself and he'll lift you up, just like he did Nancy. He'll lift us up too. So God's telling us how to love our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, our teammates, how to be patient and kind and not envy. These are action words. Take action. They're described with action words, verbs. 1 John 4, 11 says, Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. And these are the ways he's loved us. So when we love this way, he shows up in incredible fashion. When we humble ourselves and say, God, I want your way and not mine, then he shows up to empower us And as we follow his ways, he makes all things beautiful. God is love, and love never fails.